Hi and welcome to a very special edition of Nightlight because we're going to be hearing the testimony of Howard Storm who had a remarkable life after death experience in which he experienced both hell and heaven. He's author of Descent into Death, A Second Chance at Life, which is now being made into a Hollywood movie. And he's here with us on Nightlight speaking to us from his home in Kentucky, the USA over Skype to tell us his story. Nightlight's interview of the week. Howard, welcome to Nightlight. I've always loved to hear people's life after death testimonies, and there are now a lot of them on YouTube, but there are very few people who've had a taste of both hell and heaven. And I'm very eager to hear your story. I was wondering if you like the idea of, in this show, just telling us your testimony, and then we could do a follow-up program in which our listeners can ask you questions. How does that sound? Yeah, that'd be great. Actually, I prefer Q&A because I like to interact with people. Right. I can do the narration without commentary or I can insert some commentary into it. Yes. Um, you know, I was a church pastor for 30 years. Um, I have a, more than a bit of preacher in me. <laughs> I do all this for the sole purpose of trying to get people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I always say yes to interviews. I never, um, I've never turned an interview down, really. I've done many interviews where they've edited out Jesus Christ Gosh. out of the whole interview. I only mentioned him like, you know, 47 times or 63 times. And Gosh. Interesting that it has to go to a lot of work to cut yeah. my butt Jesus out of the interview. <laughs> <laughs> I won't be editing anything out. Nightlight is a Christian program, and we'd love to hear anything you share with us about your encounter with Jesus. I mean, I'll talk about who I was, what happened, the hellish experience, and then Jesus rescuing me and uh, straightening me out but that's what i want to spend most of the interview time i mean this this time on this narration time talking about how uh, the things that jesus told me which are i mean of course they were entirely personal personal but i think that most of what he told me is applicable to everybody because i'm not that different than anybody else for sure i i am absolutely 100 percent not a universalist okay i I know there's a hell, and I know lots of people go there. And I also know that God doesn't want anyone to go to hell, and that people choose that by rejecting God. Mm -hmm. I think God, well, I don't think, I know because Jesus told me, God's getting very fed up with us, Mm -hmm. the human race. Because, you know, when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, that was supposed to be a world-changing event. To some degree, it was. But you know what's changing right now, of course, is people are rejecting God. I mean, you know that. I spent a couple of weeks evangelizing in Kenya, um, and I really want to say this to your audience, because I assume your audience is African, right? Well, no, I hosted Nightlight on a Christian radio station here in Uganda for about 14 years, but now it's broadcast online, and we have listeners from all around the world, not just Uganda. Okay. Because when I was preaching in Uganda, the Holy Spirit, while I was preaching, kept telling me to say something, and I kept telling the Holy Spirit to leave me alone, and I didn't want to say it. 
and the Holy Spirit won. We had quite a battle while I was preaching because on one hand I'm out there preaching my little heart out at these revivals. On the other hand, I'm having this inner dialogue with like, I can't tell them that, I can't tell them that. Well, anyways, what the, the message was, the Holy Spirit told me to tell the people of Kenya that Africa is the hope of the world, not wow. Europe, not the United States, but it's Africa. Mm-hmm. because that's where the fire of faith is burning brightly in the whole world today. I got to witness it. I was so taken. Uh, when I came home, I asked my wife if we could move to Kenya. She <laughs> turned down the idea. <laughs> I've never seen that kind of enthusiasm for Jesus anywhere. Ever. I've been China, South America, Central mm-hmm. America, all over Europe, and I've never seen anything like what I saw in Kenya encouraging you how very dearly Jesus loves you. You're listening to Nightlight. Anyway, Howard, thanks so much for agreeing to come on the show. And for those who haven't read your book or seen your different interviews on YouTube, please take as much time as you need to share with us your amazing story. We have a guest tonight on Nightlight. Greetings from beautiful northern Kentucky. This is Howard Storm. I live in Fort Thomas, Kentucky, which um, some people call Kentucky the buckle on the Bible belt, but I think there are other locations around the Midwest and the South that make the same claim. We are known for horse racing and mountains and beautiful lakes and rivers. A lot of people vacation in this area. I grew up in Massachusetts in a suburb of Boston. I did my education in the San Francisco Bay Area. I spent a wonderful year living in Roswell, New Mexico, which is desert, high desert. And that was a great experience. So I've been around the United States. I've traveled all over the world, China, South America, Central America, all over Europe. Been to Finland four times, which is where my mother's from, an adorable country. The amazing thing is, is that I've met real brothers and sisters in Christ everywhere I've gone. This has been one of the great joys of my life, meeting these people. And when I call them brothers and sisters, I don't mean that as a formal term or some cute term. I mean it sincerely. People that in minutes we're embracing and telling each other how much we love each other, (laughs) getting tears in our eyes because we just, uh, people who really love the Lord are really brothers and sisters in some kind of uh, spiritual way that I've experienced hundreds and hundreds of times all over the world and most especially in Africa in Kenya where I was two years ago anyways and that didn't always be that way for me when I was a boy I became very disillusioned with the church my father and I didn't get along matter of fact our relationship became one of just mutual hostility. And so around the age of 15, I just turned away from the faith and very rapidly got caught up in what at the time, I'm talking about like the very early 1960s, existentialism, Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, Martin Heidegger, all that sort of thing. And this is is atheist philosophy. And then when I went to college at the age of 17, my uh, first semester, I took a class with a philosophy professor who was an atheist, existentialist, and 
Oh, it was wonderful, you know. We used to go out drinking in bars and talking philosophy late into the night, and what a thrill for a 17-year-old man to be taken under the wing of a college professor and encouraged in my newfound um, total cynicism about religion. Bottom line is, I went to college, got a career as a college professor, mocked Christianity, mocked Christians. All of my friends at the university were atheists. And living the American dream, pursuing cars, houses, women, power, success, fame. That was my life. On June 1st, 1985, while I was taking a group of students around Europe on an art tour, it was a three-week tour of Europe. We were in Paris. Next day, we were going to uh, the airport in Amsterdam to return to the United States. It was a Saturday, June 1, 1985, at 11 o'clock in the morning. I had a perforation of my small stomach. What that experience was at 11 o'clock in the, on this Saturday in the hotel, trying to get the students going so that we could go to the Georges Pompidou Center, which was going to be our last art museum on our visit. I collapsed on the floor, kicking, screaming in the most acute pain that I'd ever had. My wife called the receptionist at the hotel. They called an emergency service. A doctor came very quickly, I think within 10 minutes. He was very nice. He struggled mightily to get me off the floor and settle me down because I was um, thrashing about. He knew almost immediately what was wrong with me, told me that I had to have surgery within the hour or I would die. And he called an ambulance, which took me to the big city hospital in Paris. At that hospital, I was taken into emergency, examined by two very nice doctors. Uh, they took my medical history, the x-ray and stuff like that. Said the same that the visiting doctor had said that if I didn't have surgery immediately, I would die. I just want to add every doctor I've spoken to, and there's been many of them back in the United States ever since, they all said, yeah, your life expectancy was probably a couple hours at best, maybe three, but you would die. Of course, what's happening is the hydrochloric acid, which is one of the main components of your gastric acid and the bacteria and enzymes and all that good stuff that digested foods was leaking from my small stomach into my abdomen. I can describe what that felt like. It felt like having a red hot ember in the middle of my abdomen. It was terrifying and the pain was, um, it, let me just say it felt like the top of my head was going to blow off. The pain was so intense. So emergency sent me over to the surgical hospital and they parked me in a bed. And unfortunately, because of the healthcare system, because it was a Saturday, there was no surgeon available to do the surgery on me. So I was never technically admitted into the surgical hospital because there was no doctor there to sign me in and take me on as a patient. So I was parked in a room and I was left there for 10 hours. I was given no medication. I was given no treatment. To be perfectly clear, I was not given a pillow or a blanket. I was just put on a bed and left for 10 hours. About every hour or two, a nurse would come by and go, Siva, I would say, I'm dying. 
<laughs> Tears rolling out of my eyes, begging and pleading for morphine. And she would say, uh, you know, nothing she could do, no doctor. So it started at 11 o'clock in the morning. At 8.30 that night, the nurse came into the room and said she was very sorry, but they were unable to locate a doctor and they would try and get one the next day. Now, the pain, which had started off as a point in the center of my abdomen, had become from my groin up to my shoulders. It was very, very difficult to breathe. So my 100% of my mind and my energy was focused on breathe in, breathe out. The problem with breathing is that you agitate your abdomen, your diaphragm moves when you breathe. And when I used my diaphragm to breathe, the pain leapt up from excruciating to something worse. <laughs> breathing was like a real struggle against the pain. Also, I was terrified of not breathing because I knew when you stop breathing, you die. And as a college professor, which means that I know more than you do, I knew that when you stop breathing, you die. And I know that when you die, the end, curtain falls, fade to black, all over. There's nothing else. I knew that. All my friends knew that. We knew that people that believed in heaven and hell and life after death and stuff like that were like people that also believed in uh, fairies and uh, dragons and Santa Claus and, you know, all kinds of... Uh, you know, silly things, but we didn't believe in silly things. We believed in reality. We were tough, you know. You live, you have some fun, you suffer, and then you die. So what? No point to any of it. That's what we all knew. So, nurse left the room. I said to my wife, it's time for us to say goodbye because now I'm going tell my kids that I love them, tell my parents I love them. All my friends, I thought about them. I love you. Goodbye. She sat down and cried. And I closed my eyes and stopped struggling to breathe anymore. And I went unconscious. Very quickly. Of course, I don't know how long I was unconscious. People always ask me, like, how would I know? Was I conscious? And uh, I awoke and I was standing next to the bed and I felt better than I'd ever felt in my whole life. And I was so happy, and I couldn't believe it, so I touched myself from the top of my head right down to my feet, and wow, I'm all there. I could see better, I could taste better, I could hear, hear better, I could smell better, I could, you know, every, everything was enhanced. It was exciting. I tried to communicate with my wife and with the man very, very kind Frenchman by the name of Monsieur Florent, who was a retired uh, Frenchman. I thought they were ignoring me. I'm yelling and screaming at them, and they're looking through me like I'm not there in the room. It's very, very disturbing, and it made me very angry that they would treat me like that. People have asked me, did you know you had died? And I said, no, I was more alive than I'd ever been in my whole life. <laughs> you know, why would I think about dying? Mm -hmm. Then something terrible happened. I noticed in the bed that I had been in, there was a body covered by a sheet all the way up to the chin. And when I bent over, body was facing away from me. When I bent over to look at the face, to my horror, it looked a lot like me. 
and I couldn't understand why this this dead piece of meat laying in the bed bore such resemblance to me because it wasn't me. I'm I'm standing over at it, looking at it. I'm not that thing. I couldn't figure it out. More confusion, more more upset. And then right away I heard people calling me by name from outside the room. And they were saying in perfect English, Howard, you have to come now. Hurry, let's go. Come with us. So I went over to the doorway of the room and there was a group of people standing out in the darkened shadows of the hallway, very authoritatively telling me to come with them. And I said to them, I'm sick. I need a doctor. I'm supposed to have surgery. Have you come to take me to the doctor? And they said, we know all about you. We've been waiting for you a long time. You have to come now. I find those three remarks very, very interesting. I've thought about them a lot, but I won't go into that right now. But they told me that they had, they knew all about me, they'd been waiting for me a long time, and it was urgent that I come with them. So I assumed that they were from the doctor to take me to surgery because they had not disputed that when I asked them. So I left the room and I followed them as we journeyed down the hall. They quickly surrounded me and shepherded me deeper and deeper and deeper into their world. We didn't travel up, down, right, left. We just walked and walked and walked for um, time without any measure. And as we walked, three things were happening. One, it was getting increasingly dark. Two, the number of people in our group kept increasing. Started off with a couple handfuls of people and now there were dozens and dozens and then it was hundreds and it was turning into a mob. And thirdly, from being uh, very authoritative, they started getting nasty and making remarks about me, crude, ugly remarks about me. And it became quite disturbing. Although physically I felt well, I was getting very, very afraid of what was happening. I got to the point where I realized that we were in complete darkness. And I said to them, I'm not going with you any further, I'm going back. And they said, you've got further to go. And they began to push and pull me. And I fought as hard as I could, as well as I could but there was countless number of them and they were having their way. The fighting began with uh, pushing and pulling, then it was punching and kicking, then it was biting, clawing, and then it was being invasive into my body. When I was all torn up, I was lying on the ground of that place, totally defeated, and by that I mean not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, and people were still trying to get a reaction out of me by kicking me, but I couldn't react anymore. I had nothing to react with anymore, barely able to even moan or groan. And I heard a voice, and it said, pray to God. And I thought, I don't believe in God, I don't pray. The voice said, pray to God. 
and I thought, I don't know how to pray. I don't know. I don't. I, I can't pray. I, I don't pray. And the voice said, pray to God. When I was a little boy, we went to Sunday school and they taught us prayers. What are the prayers? And I'm trying to remember the prayers and I'm going through all the stuff that I had memorized as a little child. And I finally hit upon two phrases. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, was one. And the other phrase was, our Father who art in heaven. And I thought, aha, I know two prayers. So I said those two phrases, and the people around me were horrified and terribly angry. And they were screaming at me in most obscene language. There is no God. Nobody can hear you. And we're going to make things much worse for you if you don't stop immediately. I also realized that those mentions of God had made them back off rapidly away from me. So for the first time in my acquaintance with these people in the dark, I was able to repel them with the mention of God. So I started throwing, hurling every bit of anything I could come up with in my imagination that had God in it. Like, God's going to get you. God hates you. God wants you to leave me alone. You know, God doesn't care about you. You know, just, I mean, just a, anything I could come up with, I was, I was chucking it at them. And they retreated and retreated. And finally, I realized I couldn't sense them around me anymore. They had left me alone. They were so repelled by the mention of God. So now I had a time by myself, time without any limit. And I thought about my life and I came to the conclusion that my life had been without any purpose or meaning and that as a son, as a husband, as a father, as a teacher, I was woefully lacking. The reason why I felt this way because I was so self-absorbed with my own needs and concerns that I wasn't that interested in other people. I wasn't that interested in my wife, my children, my parents, my students. I mean, it was all about me. That's a good, good American way to be, by the way. It's, that's our culture, totally self-absorbed. I realized that I'd ended up in this dark pit with these other people who had lived like I had lived. And this is where I was going to spend the rest of my existence, whatever that might be. It was a terrible thought, terrible situation. Stuck in that hole of severe depression, my mind brought up a vivid memory of a little boy, me, sitting in a Sunday school classroom singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. And it just kept the little boy that I could see and hear and feel who was me. Jesus loves me, this I know. And like for the first time in my whole life, but more specifically for the first time in this whole experience, there was this possible hope of rescue, of salvation. So with all of my strength and all of my being, I called on the darkness, Jesus, please save me. And when I did that, 
a tiny little star appeared in the darkness and became very, very bright rapidly. And I realized it wasn't getting brighter, it was getting closer. And it came right before me, impossibly brilliant white light. At one point in my life, I was a welder. And if you don't wear your um, black glass mask when you weld, you'll burn your eyes up. And this light was brighter than that, but it didn't burn me. In fact, it created such love and hope and healing and goodness. It was absolutely mesmerizing. And out of this light emerged two hands and two arms, which reached down and touched me. And when he touched me, the gore that I could see that I was just this heap of gore all dissolved away and I was completely intact again. And then his hands reached behind my back and gently picked me up and brought me to him and wrapped around me and held me very firmly against himself. I did most sensible thing I've ever done in my whole life. I buried my face in his chest with my arms around him, his arms around me, and held on to him and was never ever going to let go. And I cried a cry that I've never cried before in my life from the whole of my being. So here I am hanging on to this man that I had called who came to me, who's holding me and he began to rub my back like a mother or a father would rub the back of a child, sort of like gently, there, 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 there. And I was just basking in this great love and acceptance. And I suddenly realized we were traveling. We were traveling straight upwards. And as we traveled, we were going faster and faster and faster. And I thought to myself, wow, where are we going? Because I've got my face buried in his chest. So I tried to get up the nerve and the composure to lift my head and look into the direction where we were going. And what I saw, what at first I thought was a galaxy, a world made up of trillions and trillions of spots of light but as we got closer to it, I came to realize it wasn't a galaxy and they weren't stars. They were beings and they were all moving around this great, huge, vast center of light. And I also knew immediately this is God's house, also known as heaven. And then I had a thought, which was, I'm a piece of horrible filth He's made a terrible mistake. I don't belong here. And with that, my new friend Jesus and I stopped outside of this world of light. And he spoke to me for the first time, directly speaking with his voice into my mind. And he said, quote, we don't make mistakes. You do belong here. And I thought, I didn't say I thought, how do you know I thought that? And he said, I know everything you've ever thought. Then I thought, oh, that's really, really bad. There's lots of things I've thought 
that I don't want you to know that I've thought. And I started to think about all the things that I've thought that I didn't want him to know that I'd thought. And he started laughing and laughing and laughing. Not because he thought the things that I was thinking about were so amusing. He understood the irony, which took me a bit to catch on to that for someone that knows everything you've ever thought, thinking about the things you don't want them to know that you've thought only <laughs> brings them up to someone who already knows everything you think. When I finally caught on to what was so funny, which was me trying not to think about bad things, but thinking about them, he laughs. He's got a sense of humor. He thinks I'm funny. I love this guy. He's great. <laughs> you know, He can laugh. He's not mad at me. And we began to converse. After we conversed for a while, and by the way, he's the best friend you'll ever have in your whole life. Easy to talk to. He said that he had some friends he wanted me to meet. And I went, oh, yeah, sure, great. So he called out and a group of what I refer to as angels, for lack of a better term, came and hovered around us because we're out in the middle of space. We're not standing on anything. He's holding me. And I'm hanging on to him because I don't want to drift away. He explained that they had recorded my entire life and they wanted to show me my life. So I had a life review beginning with my birth. As I went into my teenage years, I saw that I was becoming more and more self-centered, more and more defensive, more and more manipulative, and relatively successful in this strategy of life to get my way. The angels and Jesus shared their disappointment and their sadness with the way my life was turning. And as my life went on, more and more, there were few occasions for them to enjoy and more and more occasions where they shared their deep sorrow at what I did with the people around me. There were many times during the life review when I asked Jesus to stop it. I don't want to see it anymore. I hate it. I hate my life. I don't want to see it. He said, you need to see it. You need to know and understand. I had to go through what was unbearable watching my life. And at the end, he said, do you have any questions? And I said, I have a million questions. He said, what do you want to know? So I asked him everything that I could think of. I just want to go back to the life review for a second. The whole point of the life review, I can summarize by saying, I was put in this world to love, to be kind, to be generous, to be considerate, to care about other people, to be helpful, to use my gifts and abilities, you know, in constructive ways for the good of humanity and the world. And I had not done that. I had flunked the course. I asked Jesus all kinds of questions, personal questions, historical questions. He was the greatest teacher in the world because he was very patient, very kind, and he used lots of experiential learning. Like I would ask him a question about something and we would actually go to that time and place, whether it was in the past, the present, or the future, and we would experience it as spectators so that I would understand what he was trying to teach me. If you've got a few years, I can talk.
talk about all the things that he taught me, but since I don't think we have that kind of time, I'll just raise a, a couple uh, points. One of the toughest things was he said that, because I told him I wanted to go to heaven, he had given me like an outsider's tour of heaven, so I got to see how wonderful heaven is. And anyone who thinks they're going to be born in heaven has no idea how exciting and fun and wonderful heaven is. It's way better than this world. And everything good that ever was, is, and will be is in heaven. So you're not going to miss a thing. The centerpiece of heaven is God and God's love, which permeates everything in heaven and everyone in heaven. Of course, I wanted to be there. Anyone who knows anything about heaven, who's had the slightest experience of heaven, that's where they want to go. The only people that don't want to go to heaven are people that are completely ignorant of how wonderful heaven is. This isn't who we are. This life that we have now, this is just a preliminary experience to see if we qualify for heaven or not. That's all it is. Heaven is the real life. This is just a little tiny birthing experience that we're having before we get to experience real life. Anyways, I told him I wanted to go to heaven, and he said, no, you're not really fit to be in heaven. You need to go back to the world and try and change your character. I had a big argument with him because that I found that very upsetting. I gave him lots of reasons why he couldn't send me back to the world, and he told me patiently and kindly why my reasons weren't um, sufficient and that I needed to come back here and to try it again. I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, I said, why would you send me back to the world? The world is horrible. It's full of evil people and ugliness and cruelty. Why would you want me to put back, put me back in that place? And he said, yes, there's evil and cruelty and ugliness in the world, but there's also great beauty, great love, great kindness. And he said, whatever is in your heart is what you're going to find. If you look for evil, you'll find evil. If you look for good, you'll find good. If you look for love, you'll find love. If you look for hate, you'll find hate, etc., etc. And to my surprise, this happened in 1985. He was absolutely right. Whatever is in our heart is what we're going to find in this world. I'm not oblivious to the cruelty in this world and to the meanness in this world, but I'm also, my life is filled with good people, loving people, kind people, and great beauty everywhere I look. That's the kind of arguments I gave. So finally, I couldn't think of anything more to argue, and I said, if I were to go back to the world, what is it that you would want me to do? And he said, quote, love the person you're with. And I said, quickly and glibly, okay, got it, but what do you want me to do? And he said, I just told you, love the person you're with. And I said, yeah, I understood that, but what's the point? What good is that going to do? And he said, that's going to change the world. And I said, so you're sending me back to change the world? And he said, yes. And I said, I don't think uh, I'm going to be doing that. You know, I'm not going to be some." Adolf Hitler, Mussolini, and look at them, they tried to change the world, and they were, they were horrible people. And he said, I'm not asking you to be them, I just want you to love the person you're with. And I said, well, how's that going to change the world if I love someone? You know, what, what's that going to do? And he said, there's millions of people 
trying to change the world with love. And I said, well, there's billions of people in the world and like having a few million people trying to love them isn't going to change the world. And he said, they're not alone. And I said, who else do you have in this? And he said, billions of angels. And I went, oh, okay. Billions of angels, millions of people, not enough. And I told Jesus, I said, you don't know how bad the world is, which is a dumb thing to say because actually he does know how bad the world is. He was here. He is here. And I said, how is this going to ever work? And he said, it's God's plan. Well, when he said it's God's plan, I couldn't think of any smart thing to refutiate that with. And what are you going to say when someone tells you it's God's plan? You know, it's like, okay, I guess I gotta, I guess I gotta go with the God plan idea. So he convinced me after a very long argument that I needed to come back here. And when I agreed, I was back in the bed, back in the body, back in the pain. And immediately when I came back, it was now about 9 o'clock at night. The nurse who had been in the room at 8.30 came into the room and said, a doctor has arrived at the hospital and you're going to have your surgery now. And they evicted my wife from the room and they prepped me for surgery, which I had at 10 o'clock. The next morning, when I awoke from surgery, I knew that the most important thing in my entire life had happened to me that previous evening. The question that I was asking myself, where do I begin? I had spent 38 years of my life making this person, Howard Storm, and now I had to deconstruct it and remake it all over again. Where do I start? Uh, that's what I became kind of obsessed with, and that's still a big part of my process of living is like how to deconstruct the old self and build a new Christ-like self. And it's a daily process and it never ends. I also thought about what am I going to tell my wife when I meet her and she appeared that afternoon. I was in this um, recovery area. I'd just come out of uh, many hours of abdominal surgery. She came into the room and I said to her, it's all love. And she said, I love you. And I said, I know you love me, but it's all love. And she said, there are lots of people that love you. And I said, I know, but that's not what I'm talking about. I said, it's all love. And she said, what are you talking about? And I said, it's an ocean of love. And you have to immerse yourself in that ocean of love. And she said, you need to go to sleep. You're not making any sense. When she said that, I knew it wasn't going to be easy because <laughs> I'd spent a long time composing that little soliloquy that I gave her. And man, she just didn't get it. So from that day on, I would try and tell her about my experience. And she did not like hearing it. And she would tell me many, many times, I don't want to hear this stuff. So this happened on Saturday. On Tuesday, they took me from recovery and put me back in the room where I had come into the hospital on the third floor. And it was in the late afternoon, and my roommate had been taken away for tests somewhere, so I was alone in the room, and I heard an audible voice that said, you're not going to get well in this hospital. You need to go home to America Monday. And I said to the voice, 
they told me that I'm going to be in this hospital for four weeks and then I'm really sick and I feel awful. I can't go home on Monday. And the voice said, believe. So my wife came to the hospital a little while after I heard this voice. And I said to her, we need to go home Monday. I can't get well here. She said, there's a pay phone. This was before cell phones. <laughs> there's a pay phone out in the hall. I'll go call my parents in Iowa because we were out of money because we'd lost it. We'd missed the flight. We lost our paying ticket. She was staying at the hotel and she was almost broke. And uh, she called her parents in Iowa, got right through to them. They said, give us your phone number. We'll call you back. She came into the room. About 20 minutes had transpired from when she left the room to when she came back. And she said, I talked to my parents. They called their bank. The banker had just come home from a trip to Paris and they had had a medical emergency and he knew how to wire us money. And I am going to the bank to get the money. I'll be back in an hour. She came back in an hour with two business class tickets back to Kentucky on TWA leaving Monday morning from Charles de Gaulle at 8.30. She said, I've got the plane tickets. And I said, are you crazy? Why'd you buy the plane tickets? I'm too sick to go home. And she said, you told me to get tickets for Monday. And I said, I know I said that, but I can't go anywhere. I'm too sick. And she said, do you want me to return the tickets? And I said, don't sell those tickets. We're going home Monday. What do you want me to do? And I said, hang on to the tickets. Sunday comes around. And I'm not doing well at all. And Sunday morning I wake up and I feel good. And my wife, under orders from me, had brought me my clothing and my razor and a hair comb and toothbrush and toothpaste. I mean, I hadn't been bathed or anything all this time. So I like, I mean, I stank like hell and I'm like, I'm disgusting. So anyways, Sunday morning, I get up feeling good. I had this little tiny bathroom. There's no shower, there's no bathtub, just a sink and a toilet, just big enough to stand in. And I bathed myself, I washed my hair, and I washed my whole body from top to bottom with a washcloth in the sink, soap. I shaved, dried myself, got dressed in my clean clothes that my wife had brought me the day before, and I sat in the chair and waited for her to arrive. She arrived at the hospital early in the afternoon, and I said, I'm ready, let's go. And as we were walking out of the hospital, the nurse spotted me and she's yelling at me, Mr. Storm, Mr. Storm, where are you going? Where are you going? And I said, I'm leaving. And she said, you can't go anywhere. You're not discharged. You're too sick. And I said, no, I'm leaving now. And she said, I'm getting a doctor. And I said, fine, get the doctor. So she runs and gets a doctor whom I never met. And he starts yelling at me. And I said, excuse me, I've been discharged. And he said, well, I didn't see the papers. And I said, well, that's your mistake. I've got a taxi waiting. I've been discharged and I'm leaving now. Goodbye. And I walked out. We went to the hotel, stayed there, got up at five o'clock in the morning and got a taxi till, uh, to Charles de Gaulle Airport, got on a plane, flew to JFK International in New York City, had a four hour layover, got on a plane to Kentucky, got to Kentucky and I went to the hospital here in Kentucky and my family doctor who was a really great guy, Dr. Grover, met me at the hospital. He examined me 
and he said, you have two collapsed lungs, double pneumonia, and your liver functions are really bad. He said, how did you make it here? And I looked Dr. Grover in the eye and I said, I have friends. And then I realized that it was prudent to keep my mouth shut after that. Because if I tried to explain to who my friends were, it probably call in the psychiatrist because I want to tell them about God and Jesus. But I, I did not feel it was the right time or place to go into God and Jesus with Dr. Grover. So I didn't. And he admitted me to the hospital. And I was there for two months, most of the time on critical list. In case your listeners don't know what that means, in hospital language, you have several states. Like you're in fair condition, you're out of there. You're not in the hospital anymore. You're you're, you're getting well. Critical is the opposite. It means critical means literally they don't know whether you're going to live or die. I was on critical for most of the time I was in that hospital. I had septus, which means that the um, infection was throughout my whole body, and it was very painful, very troubling. And while I was in the hospital. I felt compelled to talk about Jesus and God and heaven and the devil and hell to every single person that came into the room. Overwhelmingly, the people did not appreciate my lectures. I found out later from a nurse who worked on that floor that I had become the joke of the hospital and people would come who had nothing to do with me or even that floor. They would come to um, hear me rant and rave about Jesus and God and stuff. And then they would leave the room and they would all go laugh at the nurse's station or wherever because they thought it was also funny. But there were a couple people that did listen. Finally, I was discharged from the hospital so that I could go home to build up my strength to have major surgery to try and repair the adhesions and scarcifications that had occurred because of the septus. So I, was, I had to build up my strength so that I could undergo major surgery. And when I got home, I got hold of a Bible, fell absolutely in love with it because many of the things that I found in the Bible were either identical or very similar to things that Jesus had taught me and told me. And I also looked at other religions that did not find, I found some good things that did not find the same level of revelation, truth, honesty that I found in the Bible. So anyhow, became infatuated with the Bible Nobody wanted to hear about God and Jesus. And a friend of mine who was a devout Catholic, he and his wife, I talked to them on the phone one day and they said that they would like me to come to a Bible study that their priest led at their home. So I went there and when I got to the Bible study, my friend said, why don't you tell us what happened to you in Paris? So I told him what I just recounted. And these Catholics and the priest went, wow, great story. That's wonderful. Praise God. Thanks for telling your story. And it's like first people I ever met that were like really sympathetic. And I really wanted to go to church. So one day a woman that I knew from the university called me and she asked me how I was doing. And I told her I was looking for a church. She said, come to my church, and invited me to her church. And it turned out that the church that she had invited me to was the same denomination of what I had been raised in in New England. So when I went there, it was like going back to what I had been raised in, and it was absolutely wonderful. And I became very active in the church, joined a 
training, a three-year training program to become a lay minister. And when I completed that program, I knew that I wanted to be a full-time pastor. And so I decided to go to seminary, and I did. And that's what I've done up until recently, pastoring churches for 30 years. Along with that, I've been very active in worldwide mission and evangelism, which is my great passion, which is what I'm devoting all of my time and energy to at this time. I'm working with a village of Mayan people in Belize, Central America. That's my story. You're listening to an international edition of Nightlight, shining God's love light to the world. Wow, Howard, that was so inspiring. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I have a few questions I'd like to ask you, and we'll save those for the follow-up show. And you're going to also answer the questions that our listeners send in, and I'll compile those and send them to you. But before we close, please tell us how we can order your book. Sure. I've written four books. The one that's most known is the first one, which is my testimony called My Descent into Death. It was published in 2000. I think the easiest way to get it is through Amazon, but you could order it through a um, bookstore as well. On Amazon, they sell used copies, and some of them sell for as little as $2, so you can get a used copy of the book for 2 bucks, which I'm very happy about. By the way, I don't get any royalty on used books. <laughs> and that's been published in a number of languages all over the world. I wrote a um, sort of spiritual autobiography called Lessons Learned, talking about my development, my growth as a spiritual being. I wrote a um, novel based on all true events, some of them autobiographical and some of them things that people told me happened in their life. It's a love story. My most recent book is called Befriend God, Life with Jesus. I worked on that book for 20 years, and it's a book of Christology, which means it's a book about Jesus. That's also available on Amazon, and that sells for $8.88. Big thing in my life is Hollywood's bought the rights to my book, My Descent into Death, and we're in the process, uh, as we speak, of making a serious Hollywood movie out of it. Oh, wow, that's terrific. Can't wait to see it. Okay, Howard, thanks so much. I'm looking forward to the follow-up show, which let's see if we can post that in two weeks' time. God bless you. I'm going to go out with one of my very favorite songs by Jerry Palladino, and I think you'll enjoy it too, Howard. It's called I'll Meet You Over There. Like in a slow motion dance, they flow with ease In harmony with the music of the stars And they're so happy where they are They float as they walk and glide around Their feet seem to hardly touch the ground All talking and laughing What a lovely place to be 
As earth recedes, heaven opens to a world waiting above. We let go of time, pain and sorrow for this glorious kingdom of love. In the morning at dawn, I'll They're much better off than you and I Released from the troubles of this life Free from their hunger and their thirst All disease and every curse Dressed now in shimmering gowns of light Looking much like they did in prime of life Transporting to earth or anywhere They just think it and they're there As earth recedes Heaven opens to a world waiting above We let go of time, pain and sorrow For this glorious kingdom of love They watch from their vantage point of there And when aloud they help us hear And that day when our job on earth is done They'll be there to take us home On that wonderful day we will transform Feeling so loving and so warm